Abrahamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I pray that as we open your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives, that it will be your word heard, your voice received, that nothing of me will be involved except that which you have ordained specifically for this purpose. Father, breathe new life into us today that as we leave here, we will leave here transformed and ready to uh, impact the world around us for the good and glory of your kingdom. In the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, B'Shem Yeshua, in the name of Yeshua we pray. And everyone says, Amen and Amen. So this week we are yet again reading another double parshot, parshot Matot Masay. There's a lot that is covered throughout these two uh, parshas out of Numbers, uh, particularly these last two final parshots out of the book of Numbers. Things kick off with a discussion of vows and oaths, which ultimately are a uh, precursor, kind of a setting, if you would, for what will happen later on in Parsha Matot. Uh, then we progress to Adonai's command to rain vengeance on the Midianites and on Bilam for their leading Israel astray. Oddly, in the account of the battle with the Midianites, the armies of Israel brought the Midianite women back with them from their victory, the same women who led them astray in the first place. So if you pay attention to the account, it's really curious and Moses kind of goes off the handles on them about it but as they go out to war God provides a miraculous victory and then they come back bringing the same women that led them astray in the first place back into the camps of Israel with them and then Moses has to deal with that in Parsha Masay, we see the review of Israel's journey in the wilderness, God's command for the eternal boundaries of the promised land, the cities of refuge, and further instructions for the laws of the daughter's inheritance. Uh, but what I'd really like to focus on today is what we find in Numbers 32 and the discussion of the two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh, who had the chutzpah or the guts to uh, approach Moses and ask to not have land inheritance in the promised land or rather in the uh, land of Canaan where they're about to go to uh, gather the, the land that God has promised to go and fight and rid the land of the Canaanites. They decide they want the land that has already been conquered in, uh, on the east side of the Jordan as is read about in Numbers 21, 20 through 35 where we see the actual conquering of this land. They want to stop short of the full blessing that God has for them and I'll deal with this a little more in just a moment but it's really interesting that they want to jump ahead of what God's going to do because if you remember the land is supposed to be divvied out by the size of the tribe right but they've got to actually get the land first but here's two and a half tribes are going hey I know God said it's supposed to be done one way but let's try this this might be more fun let's go this route so if you have your scriptures go ahead and open up to Numbers chapter 32 beginning with verse 1 Numbers 32 verse 1 says the sons of Reuben and Gad had very large herds and flocks and they saw that the territory of uh, Jazer and Gilead were ideal for livestock so the sons of Reuben and Gad came and said to Moses Eliezer the Cohen and the princes of the community of uh, uh, the princes of the community saying Atarot dibon Jazer Nimrah Heshbon Eliale Sabam Nebo and Beon the territory Adonai conquered before the community of Israel are suitable for our livestock and your servants have livestock. Then they said, if we have found favor in your eyes, let this territory be given to your servants as a possession. Don't make us cross the Jordan. The tribe of, uh, tribes of Reuben and Gad and ultimately the half-tribe of Manasseh looked at the land on the east side of the Jordan and decided that 
it would be more than suitable for their needs. Why wait any longer on an inheritance? They approached Moses and requested the land on the east side of the Jordan be given to them as their inheritance because it was good land for the flocks and herds that they have. And as they point out, they have a lot of flocks and herds. The, the big problem here, though, is so does the rest of Israel. All of the tribes of Israel have a lot of flocks and herds. Not just these two and a half, but all of them. And all Israel is promised an eternal inheritance within the promised land. But these two and a half tribes just aren't willing to wait any longer to get theirs. Now keep in mind, the only reason they've waited this long for 40 years is because they've already rejected the land once when the first generation listened to the report of the spies. Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh are selling themselves short on the promises of God. They're impatient. They've wandered around in the wilderness with the rest of Israel for what feels like forever now. They are tired of waiting, and they really could care less about what the land on the other side of the river looks like. To them, the land on the east of the Jordan was good enough. But it, but it, uh, one day I'll learn to read, but it isn't what God wanted for them. And is this God's timing for them? Or were they expecting God to move on their timetable to do things the way they wanted? What happened to submission to Adonai? What happened to faithfulness to the Lord? What's worse is they approach Moses in what appears to be a rather conniving manner as well. Notice they didn't share their entire plan with him, just enough to get Moses riled up. They have retorted already. Uh, they, they, they have retorted. Uh, uh, they have a retort ready for when Moses gets angry, but they had a plan. They had a, a pretty good idea how Moses would respond, and they were equipped and ready with a response when he did so. And Moses does, in fact, kind of go off the rails on them, too. And he just unleashes on them and says, Are you guys really this stupid? You don't remember the issue with the spies and that Israel refused the promised land because they listened to the report of the ten spies and they chickened out on it. And the entire first generation of your fathers had to die in the wilderness because of we've wandered for 40 years which, by the way, is why most Jews don't camp today. We got enough of it back in the day. Uh, but we wandered for 40 years in the wilderness because of this exact issue, and here you are bringing it up again. Here you are pulling this all over again. Here's the thing, though. The problem with their request was that they were selling themselves short on God's promises for their lives. It wasn't anything that they had against Moses. It wasn't anything that they had against the rest of Israel. They were selling themselves short on what God had in store for them. They were selling themselves short on God's blessing, on his promise, and on his calling. And here's the awkward part of it all. Technically, the Transjordan area of the land that Reuben and Gad had their eyes on was actually a part of the territory that Adonai had already promised as an eternal inheritance to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's not like they couldn't have possibly had that land if they just went the right way around it. But they decided that they wanted to take it into their own hands and step outside of the will of God. The reality is, is that there is an order and a process to everything godly. And these two and a half tribes were jumping ahead of and outside of God's will and were selling themselves short. The promised land was to be divided among the tribes of Israel based off the size of each tribe. So their request was severely premature because at this point they hadn't actually conquered the whole land yet, right? They hadn't actually taken the land of Canaan. They hadn't actually gotten rid of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and so on. They just got lucky and God was blessing them through one particular battle before they actually went into the promised land. But they hadn't actually conquered the land itself, the fullness of the covenantal land that God was giving to Israel. 
And yet here they are trying to jump ahead of what God wanted. Their request was entirely selfishly motivated. Their request could foster not only disunity and dissension among the nation, but it could also have caused a disheartening, as Moses brings up, when he compares their action to that of the rebellion of the spies. And not only a disheartening in the nation of Israel, but it could have caused the nation of Israel, the second generation as a whole, to make the same mistakes that their fathers did and reject the promised land. Because who's to say the rest of the tribes wouldn't have looked at what Gad and Reuben were asking and went, oh, you know what, dudes are right, pretty good land. I mean, we won this already. Do we really have to go exert ourselves over there? Is it really that much better over there that we got to go fight? I mean, we already won this. Isn't this enough that we can just settle here? How often do we find ourselves guilty of doing this same exact thing, of selling ourselves short on what God has in store simply because where we are looks pretty good? It's comfortable. It's safe. If Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh found rest for their families and livestock here and now, then they'd be risking a lot if they went in later to try and get more. So why not just settle now? Let's go forward to Numbers 32, verse 14. It says, Now look, here you stand in the place of your fathers as a brood of sinful men to add more to Adonai's great wrath against Israel. If you turn away from him, he will repeat again, leaving this people in the wilderness. You being the cause of this people's destruction. Verse 16 then they came up to him and said, We will build sheepfolds for our livestock and our cities for our children. But we are prepared to arm ourselves and go ahead of Ben Israel until we have brought them to their place. Our children will live in the cities fortified against the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each one of Ben Israel has, has received his inheritance. Yet we will not inherit with them on the side beyond the Jordan, since our inheritance has come on the east side of the Jordan. Moses unleashes his feelings about this situation, and those couple of verses that we read, beginning with verse 14, are really just the ending. It's the summation of what Moses was, uh, was saying to them. He tells these two and a half tribes that their actions here uh, and now are from the same heart as the spies who incited the nation of Israel to revolt against the promises of God in the first place, causing the entire first generation to die in the wilderness. Now, here they stand risking the same idiotic crisis all over again. How after 40 years in the wilderness, after everything they've been through, after everything God has done, after everything that they already know about the land, and after all the deaths, could they have possibly stood there and risked so much? I can imagine Moses' father-like heart looking at these two and a half tribes with tears in his eyes, with his voice somewhere between uh, an ugly cry and a full-on roid rage, saying something along the lines of, how could you be so selfish? How could you even consider risking it all over again? Have you even thought of the consequences? Have you even thought? Did you think this through at all before you decided to ask this question? But Reuben and Gad are quick with their response, mainly because they knew what Moses would say before they ever asked. So, as we said earlier, they approached him with their request in a very conniving, deceptive way. And as they prepared to respond to Moses' ripping them a new one, I can kind of see them starting out their suggestion with one of those cute little lines. We had a feeling you might say that. 
So then they continue with verse 16. We will build sheepfolds for our livestock and cities for our children, but we are prepared to arm ourselves and go ahead of Bnei Israel until we have brought them to their place. Our children will live in the cities fortified against the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each one of Bnei Israel has received his inheritance. Yet we will not inherit with them on the side, uh, on the side beyond the Jordan since our inheritance has come on the east side of the Jordan. They were locked and loaded with this load of garbage. I mean, if you're going to go, you might as well go all out. They knew how, uh, how Moses worked. They knew what he was going to say. They knew how he was going to respond. Keep in mind, Moses was the leader of Israel, sure, but he also was kind of a father figure to them. And as such, Israel, just like children, especially teenagers, knew exactly how to try and work the system. They knew how to push his buttons and they knew what was going to get him riled up. They knew their initial response was going to cause a certain reaction out of Moses. They were counting on it. And they had this response locked and loaded and ready to go. They just had to let Moses blow off some initial steam first. A lot of times people will teach this and they'll talk about how Moses suggested that they should just go before the nation of Israel and go fight. And then if they did so, they could go back and get the land. But the reality is, is that it was Gad and Reuben who brought this suggestion up first. And Moses said, well, if you're going to do this, then that's how it's going to play out. You'll go before the rest of your brothers. You'll fight with them and before them. And once every single one of them have found rest in their inheritance, then you can come back. But if a single one of you comes back to the east side of the Jordan before your brothers have all found rest, then you lose that and you get inheritance with the rest of it. Now, how bad off does your mentality have to be in terms of the will of God, how bad off does your mentality have to be that a suggested punishment is for you to do what God wanted in the first place? Think about that. They approached Moses with something so ridiculous that Moses said, hey, but if you don't do what you said you're going to do, then you're, you're going to get what you were supposed to get in the first place. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yet here, the tribe of Reuben and Gad and ultimately the half-tribe of Manasseh wholeheartedly approach Moses with this notion, with this idea. Here's the thing, though. In reality, aren't we just like them? When we're trying to sell ourselves short, when we try to take the shortcut to get to God's promises, don't we act exactly the same? We create all sorts of justification and excuses. We talk a big game, but we know what we're really doing. I can kind of relate to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh here personally. Some of you know some of my background and some of my story already. Um, I am, for, for those that aren't aware or just need a refresher, I am one of the few people that I know of, uh, not that there aren't others, but I'm one of the few people that I personally know that has known more or less my entire life what my calling was and what I was supposed to be doing with my life. Um, I, I wasn't necessarily okay with it. I was raised in the Messianic Jewish movement. My father is a Messianic Jewish rabbi. Uh, I married a girl whose father is also a Messianic Jewish rabbi. I have been in this sphere uh, for most of my life, and I've known for the majority of my life exactly what I was supposed to be doing. I, in some form or another, have been in some sort of Messianic Jewish ministry since I was in middle school. I started on uh, our worship team at our synagogue uh, back in Mobile when I was in like seventh grade. Uh, so I've been in some form of ministry in Messianic synagogues since I was in middle school. 
When I was a kid, numerous people prophesied over me and virtually the same exact verbatim words every time they did. And my parents will tell you that the first time it was said was when my mom was pregnant with me. It was before I was ever born. And then over and over and over again as I was growing up, people would say almost the exact same verbatim uh, prophecy over me. And that was that uh, I was going to grow up to be a great leader of my people. And when I was little, it didn't make any sense. And when we got involved with Messianic Judaism when I was in elementary school, it kind of sort of started to make sense, right? Because my father was raised in a traditional Jewish home. He was raised in an Orthodox home when he was younger, and then they kind of became conservative, and then he became agnostic because they couldn't answer questions that he had in a way that he was satisfied with. Like Daniel says that the Messiah has to come before the destruction of the temple. The temple's been gone for a minute. Where's Messiah? Um, and they couldn't answer the question sufficiently to his desire. And so he kind of just said, well, I know that there is a God. I don't really know or care to know what I believe. So I'm just not going to worry about it right now. Ultimately, that led him down a path that he became a believer through a friend of his in the Navy, uh, uh, witnessing with him and leading him to the Lord. And so my father, when he became a believer, our family kind of distanced themselves uh, a great deal. And uh, that's an understatement in reality, but they distanced themselves from us. Um, and then I was born and my family kind of started to come around a little bit because they want to know the grandkid uh, and, and, and what have you. But on top of the family and the Jewish world pushing my dad aside, where it gets even more interesting is that my dad became a believer in a church and the church said, hey, all that Jewish stuff that you've always known, it doesn't matter anymore. You can toss it out the window. It's all gone. It doesn't matter anymore. So here my dad making what should have been the most important decision of his life suddenly lost everything. He lost his family. He lost all of his friends that he grew up with. He lost uh, everything on that side. And then he became a believer in the church, then yanked what, left, what he had left of his identity away from him uh, and pulled it away. But then when he got into ministry, all of a sudden everybody wanted him to come speak in their churches because he was the token used to be a Jew. They wanted him to come talk about what Judaism was, what he used to be as a Jew. And so he really struggled when, when I was a kid with his identity crisis of being a believer and being Jewish at the same time. Whereas myself growing up in the Messianic movement, I never had that identity crisis. My generation in the Messianic Jewish movement, we never had that identity crisis. Like, we're Jewish, we believe in Yeshua. You don't like it? Oh, well, I don't really care. This is who I am, and this is what I'm going to do. And it really doesn't affect me whether or not you do or don't like that. Um, as I said, my father is a Messianic rabbi. My father-in-law is a Messianic rabbi. And I've known the majority of my life that I was called to be a Messianic Jewish rabbi. But I didn't want that. I didn't want anything to do with it. I've witnessed the pain and the anguish of being in congregational ministry. I've seen the way people can turn on you, uh, the way congregants can break your heart. I have seen the toll that the middle of the night emergency phone calls take. I've seen how quick congregants who were close to you and who were friends can turn, to, turn on you. I've seen the ups and downs. I've seen the mental, emotional, and psychological anguish. I've witnessed the best of the best and the worst of the worst that being a Messianic rabbi has to offer. I grew up witnessing it, and I wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. I didn't walk from God. I, as a matter of fact, I was in synagogue every week. I was on worship teams. My wife and I, uh, when we were younger, led our youth group and taught and different things. I just did not want to be a Messianic rabbi. I knew exactly what God wanted me to do, and in the back of my mind, I knew I didn't really stand a fighting chance to get away from it. Uh, if I truly wanted to walk with the Lord. But I was willing to run as hard, as fast, and as far away from the calling as I possibly could, or at least as far as I could get away with. So as I said, I've known most of my life what my calling was, but 
my goal, my only goal coming up through middle and high school, my only career desire in the world was to go in the Marine Corps. And I tried. I tried numerous times. And every single time, God kept shutting the door in the weirdest possible ways. Like the last attempt when I failed a urinalysis, even though I've never taken drugs a day in my life. Uh, ended up being told that the water pills that my recruiter and personal trainer that he set me up with uh, had a weird reaction with my urinary tract. And next thing I know, I've got a Navy corpsman jumping down my throat. And I've got uh, 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 a high-ranking Marine officer jumping down my throat and uh, yelling at me and reaming me out. Uh, they told me I had to wait two weeks before I could come back again to MEPS to redo my height and weight check and my urinalysis. But I was willing to wait. I was okay with that because the only thing I wanted to do was to be a Marine. And I was willing to give up everything that I knew God had in store for me, everything that I knew God wanted because it wasn't what I wanted. I knew good and well that I was simply running from the calling, but I loved the Marine Corps, perhaps the thought of it. I had several friends in the Marine Corps already, and uh, it was what I wanted to do with my life. But in the course of that two-week period uh, in which I had to wait to go back up to MEPS to try and get into the Marine Corps. In the course of that two-week period, I was driving home from the recruiting station, from uh, working out with my recruiter, and on the way home, at that point, I had a uh, 92 Mustang convertible. Uh, and before anybody gets too excited, it was the four-cylinder model, so it really wasn't that fast. It just looked cool. Um, so, so I was driving, I always had the top down, and I'm driving home, we're in Mobile, I'm at Airport Boulevard, I'm out by the malls where there's like a traffic light every 30 seconds or something, it's stupid that you can't get past them, but I'm, I'm driving back home on Airport Boulevard from the recruiting station, I hit a red light, uh, and I'm sitting there at the light, and uh, back then I almost always had, I almost always had the top down, even in the winter I'd have the top down, I'd have the windows up, and I'd have the heat blowing full blast from the floor, because uh, I just wanted to have the roof down, right? And uh, those of you that have watched me riding my motorcycle in the winter, you understand the psychosis. Maybe you don't understand it, but you've witnessed it. Um, and so, so uh, I'm driving home. I've got the, the windows down. The, the top is down. I've got uh, some, I think I had worship music maybe playing. I don't remember. I had some music playing uh, in the stereo. And I'm sitting at this red light, and it's almost like time kind of came still. Like, I... I I don't know how long I was there. It could have been seconds. I don't know, but it could have been a lot longer. But I'm sitting at this red light, and the best way I can explain it was that it was kind of like uh, God just smacked me in the back of the head. Not literally. It's not like my face smashed into the, the steering wheel or anything, but that's kind of how it played out uh, as I had this conversation with the Lord, and, and he basically told me, this isn't what I created you to do. This isn't what I called you to do. This isn't what I gifted you to do. This isn't what I want for your life. But I've stopped it over and over and over again. And I'm done stopping it. I won't do it again. You know what I want. You know what you're supposed to do. You know who you're supposed to be. And I'm not going to stop it anymore. It's on you now. If you go through with this, you'll pay the consequence. I'll let you do it. Have the time of your life but you'll pay the consequence. I'm not stopping it again. And that was the moment that I realized how serious God was about what he yearned and desired for me to do with my life. And that was the moment that I threw in the towel and I said, you know what? I'm done running. I'm done trying to get away from this. I wasn't necessarily on board with the idea of being a rabbi yet, but I was tired of being against the idea. I was tired of running from it. And from that moment forward, as a matter of fact, before I got home, I had already called my recruiter and rescinded my desire to enlist. And 
uh, got home and told Danielle what uh, I, I felt the Lord was doing, and, um, and she was totally on board because she didn't want me to go in the Marine Corps anyways. Uh, and at this point, we had been married for about six months, and what I was trying to go in the Corps for, I would have been gone for most of the next two years without seeing her, but for about a week and a half, two weeks or so. And looking back now in October, we'll be married for uh, 19 years, and looking back, uh, we are both pretty confident that had I followed through and went into the core that we probably would not be married today. Um, and so it's by the grace of God that not only did I not have to pay the consequence of not following God's lead and calling in my life, but I also didn't lose my wife and my future family, uh, which would have been an even greater consequence than I could have imagined uh, trying to simply run from the call. I'm sure each and every one of you listening to this message right now can think of times in which you were walking in Reuben and Gad's shoes. When you knew that God had laid, what God had laid out in front of you, but you also knew that selling yourself short was a way easier and way more enticing way of going. If you're as blessed and lucky as I am, you took the wake-up call that Moses was trying to give to Reuben and Gad before they followed through in their mistake, and maybe you didn't. Maybe you took the shortcut, sold yourself short on God's promise, and took the long way around before finally giving in to God. Or maybe you're still shortchanging yourself today. Either way, trust me when I tell you, trusting God to know what He is doing is way easier than trying to convince ourselves that we know what we're doing. In the Baruch HaDashah, we see several examples of similar actions and differing in results in said actions as well. First, we see Judah, or as most people know him, Judas, who literally sold Yeshua out for 30 pieces of silver. This is a man who ministered hand-in-hand hand with Yeshua and the other disciples for three years. He had an intimate relationship with Yeshua, so much so that at the final Passover Seder that Yeshua was able to experience with his disciples, he was leaning against uh, uh, Judas. He was sharing a dish with Judas. He was very much close with him. In spite of what he knew Judas was going to be doing, he still was intimate in relationship with him. He witnessed the power of God in Yeshua, yet still told, sold himself short of God's promises, blessings, and calling by stabbing Yeshua in the back. Now, Yeshua was well aware of what Judas would end up doing, and it wasn't a surprise at all to him, and we see this in his prediction of Judas's actions at his final Passover Seder, but that doesn't mean it didn't hurt Yeshua to see it happen, and it doesn't mean Judas didn't make a choice intentionally to sell himself short. Second, we see Peter, who also walked hand-in-hand hand with Yeshua, uh, with Judas and with the other disciples for three-plus years. He witnessed and was involved in the move of God through Yeshua, and much like Judas, he, told, uh, he too sold himself short of the promises, blessings, and calling by turning his back on Yeshua as well. He denied knowing, much less serving with Yeshua, three separate times while Yeshua was on trial before the Sanhedrin. And much like with Judas, Yeshua forewarned Peter that he would do this at his final Passover Seder as well. And much like with Judas, although Yeshua was well aware that it was going to happen, it doesn't mean it didn't hurt Yeshua and break his heart. As a matter of fact, we see this in Luke's account in Luke twenty-two sixty through 62. It says, but Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, this was his third time uh, denying Yeshua. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Verse 61 says, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord 
how he had told him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Could you imagine being Peter, watching Yeshua on trial? He's standing in the fire, warming his hands up, and people are accusing him, Hey, aren't you one of his boys? Aren't you one of the dudes that hung out with him? Aren't you one of the guys that wandered around the Galilee with him? Aren't you from... No, nope, I don't know what you're talking about. Nope, that's not me. Nope, 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 not me. All of a sudden, Yeshua looks dead at him. Right in the eyes. Imagine what's going through Peter's head. I've told you before when I read the Bible, it's, I, I read it as though it's a movie playing out in my head. And you can kind of tell that by the uh, uh, somewhere between ugly cry and roid rage statement earlier. Um, I picture Yeshua as Peter denies him the third time. I picture Yeshua locking eyes with Peter. And as he does, Yeshua's face is red. And there's tears just boiling down his face. It's not that Yeshua didn't know he was going to do it. Heck, he had already told him what he was going to do. He told him in advance. But it didn't hurt any less. It didn't break his heart any less. Finally, we see Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. He was trained under Rabbi Gamaliel. Uh, he had an expectation of the Messiah coming and a fervent belief in the resurrection but he did not believe that Yeshua was the Messiah. And if you are familiar at all with uh, Gamaliel, Gamaliel was one of the, and still is one of the most respected rabbis in Jewish history. Um, and if you read in Acts, I think it's Acts 5, uh, it's uh, Rabbi Gamaliel who speaks up in the Sanhedrin as they're trying to figure out what do we do with all these people that are talking about Yeshua. And he speaks up and says, hey, if you pay attention, uh, this has happened before. People have elevated dudes as Messiah and thought that, they, that he was the, the, the salvation of, of the nation of Israel. And if it really was of Messiah, if it really was of God, if this was the real Messiah, then uh, it would continue on. And there's nothing we could do to stop it. But just like before, if it's not of God, then it will die out eventually and nobody will remember anything about it. Interestingly enough, it is Paul, who is one of Gamaliel's disciples, who's doing everything in his human power to try to stop the move of God through the body of Messiah. He's doing everything in his power to try and kill it off to fulfill what Gamaliel was saying, albeit I wholeheartedly believe that God was speaking prophetically through Gamaliel to say that the body of Messiah was not going to end, that nothing was going to stop the salvation of the world that God was bringing through the Jewish people to the nations. It was obvious to everyone that there was indeed a powerful and divine calling on Paul's life, and rapidly, he rapidly rose through the ranks of the Pharisees, but for, year, uh, for years he sold himself short on what his calling truly was, even to the degree of killing believers in Yeshua. <clears throat> Ultimately, it ended up taking a divine encounter with Yeshua for Paul to finally come to faith, but once he came to faith, he was an unstoppable force for the Besorah, for the good news of Yeshua. But just because God was well aware of the journey it would take for Paul to come to faith doesn't mean it broke his heart any less when Paul was responsible for killing believers and for persecuting the body. But here's the difference between Judas and Peter and Paul. When push came to shove, when they realized that they had sold themselves short, Peter and Paul both made teshuvah. They repented and returned and became forces to be reckoned with for the kingdom of God. Whereas Judas, Judas doubled down on his selling himself short and ultimately co committed suicide. I firmly believe that had Judas repented and returned to Yeshua in faithfulness, that he too could have been a force to be reckoned with for the kingdom. You and I are all at one point or another, and perhaps even at this very moment, guilty of selling ourselves short of God's calling, of his promises for our lives. 
If we're honest, we can see ourselves in the shoes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. We can see ourselves in the shoes of Judas, Peter, and Paul. And we have the exact same choice laying before us as each of them did. We can double down like the two and a half tribes did. Uh, and when the Lord brings uh, word of correction against us, we can try to scam the system with a well-thought-out rebuttal and ultimately intentionally remain outside the will of God. We can double down like Judas did, and instead of simply repenting and seeking restoration, we can walk further away from the calling and purpose God has for our lives and ruin our lives. See, I don't believe in the least that the only purpose Yeshua had for calling Judas was for him to sell Yeshua out. I don't believe that, uh, that this was the only reason that it was supposed to be the end of the story. I don't believe that God created Judas specifically so that he could sell Yeshua for 30 pieces of silver so that Yeshua could be hung on the cross. I believe that Judas made a decision. I believe that Judas refused to humble himself and to repent. But I believe, and I have to, in order for me to believe that God truly can forgive my sins, restore my life, renew me in His Spirit, that I can be used for His kingdom, I have to believe that God could have and wanted to forgive Judas and wash his sins clean. I'm going to take it a step further. In order for me to truly believe that I can be forgiven, I have to believe that God could even forgive somebody as horrible as Hitler. Whether or not Hitler ever changed his heart before he died, I can't tell you, and I highly doubt it. But I have to at least believe that it's possible that as horrendous of a person as he was, that God could have and willingly would have forgiven him in the same way that he forgave Paul. Or we can choose to be like Peter and Paul, who once they realized they had sold themselves short, they immediately repented. They turned their hearts back to the Lord. They found forgiveness and restoration, and they became bearers of revival. As we prepare to close, I want to invite our worship team back to the Bema. But I have a question for you today. I want you to take a moment to contemplate, to examine your own personal lives, your own walks with the Lord right now. What are you allowing to hold you back? What are you selling yourself short on? What is the calling? What is the direction? What is the answer to prayer? What is the blessing that God is telling you it is time for, but that you are still not willing to take a step out into? As I said earlier, the only thing I ever wanted to do in my life was to go in the Marine Corps. I had planned on being a lifer, on retiring from the Marine Corps. But I also knew that God had other plans for my life. I knew he had something greater in store, but I was running from it. I was selling myself short. What's worse is that I was well aware of it and still was happily running away, much like the two and a half tribes. But the moment I gave in to the call, the moment I accepted what God had in store over what I wanted, my life changed dramatically. I am who I am today. I am where I am today. And CMC is what it is today. Because almost 20 years ago, I made the choice to get out of my own way, to get out of God's way, and to step into God's direction, His desires, His calling, and His promises for my life. What are you running from? What blessings are you selling yourself short on that God has in store for you, that he wants to pour out on you, that he has already spoken over you, but that we're just too stubborn, too thick-headed, too stupid to step into? 
that we refuse to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord? What is holding us back from what God wants to do in our lives? Avarachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, Lord. We thank you, God, that you are loving and caring and gracious. We thank you, Lord, that you do allow us time to figure out what it is that you are saying to us and how you want us to live our lives. Father, we thank you that you allow time that if we simply listen, that you will answer our questions, that you will speak into our lives, that you will encourage us and uplift us to walk in your calling and in your ways. Father, I ask for each and every person hearing these words today that you will speak into our lives exactly what you desire from us. That you, Lord, will soften our hearts and humble us that we're willing to follow you. That we're willing to give you our all and lay our lives on the line for the good news of Messiah Yeshua. Father, encourage us. Speak into our lives with new life, with a restoration of your Ruach HaKodesh, of your Holy Spirit, that we may be able to stand against the temptation of the world around us and the enemy trying to draw us away from you and stand firmly rooted in your desire, your will, and your call for our life. Father, I know the world around us is a little out of whack. And I know that as time draws on and uh, Messiah's return draws closer that it's only going to get worse from here. Father, if we don't have our heads screwed on right now, when things are easy, it's going to be that much more difficult for us to get in lockstep with you when the time comes that the world around us is hating us and trying to kill us and trying to end us. Father, encourage us now in your Ruach HaKodesh and your Holy Spirit to firmly walk in faithfulness with you to recognize that it's not what we want, but you want, Lord. That it's not our desire for our life, but that we need to walk within your desire for our life. You have given us gifts and talents, and, and you have given us purpose, Lord. Encourage us to stand firm in it. Not to accept everything we see in the land around us as though it's good and perfect, and ignore the fact that you have something far greater in store and in line for us. Father, breathe new life into us today that we can boldly and completely and willingly walk in faith with you. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu. In the name of Yeshua, our Messiah, we pray. And everyone says, Amen.